Let's close the eyes, just sitting nice, comfortable, tall. We recite Om three times. So take a deep breath in. Softly open the eyes. Namaste everyone, welcome and thank you all very much. Thank you Heather for giving me this opportunity to share with you this little background on what Gita has to offer us, Bhagavad Gita. Okay, so hopefully we'll gain some insight into what's in the Gita. All right, now... uh, I understand all of you have had some exposure to the Gita, is that true? Do you have a book that you read? Or? Yes, the Living Gita. Oh, the Living Gita? Yes. Okay, by Sachidanan. Yeah. Okay. And uh, have you kind of, have you gone through the whole book or uh, what's the status? I'm like halfway through. Hmm? Halfway through. Halfway through, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, you know, Gita is something that needs multiple iterations before we really can get a, a good sense of what it is. You know, I am always reminded of this statement, somebody told me, you know, this, you know, at an ashram, these people, they give talks on Gita. So one of the students who, who approached the Swami, he says, uh, Swamiji, I have gone through this Gita multiple times, but I still don't understand why they have to fight the war. So the Swamiji said, look, you have gone through the Gita Gita many times. That's not the issue. The question is, has the Gita gone through you? Okay. So that's where we are. You know, we keep reading it over and over and over and again. Every time you read, get a little different insight, maybe a better insight. And then it's a lifelong process. Well, lifelong, maybe multiple lifetimes. Who knows? (laughs) Okay, so in any case, I will uh, go through some of this stuff, and if you think it is, it is totally familiar with, to you, we can, you know, go a little faster. It depends, you know. All right, so I'm going to uh, give a brief background as to what, what went on, uh, what events led to the, to the war itself. Then there are these four, you can think of them as the paths of yoga, which are mentioned, karma yoga, yoga of action, bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of devotion, jnana yoga, which is the yoga of knowledge, and finally, dhyana yoga, yoga of meditation. Then there are a large number of references and a lot of discussion on these three gunas, sattva, rajas, and tamas, and we'll talk briefly about them. 
And then what, and so what I have done here is, after having gone through the Gita, like, I, you know, like the other guy said, you know, I've gone through it many times. I've gone through it several times. But uh, what I've done is I've picked a few verses that represent each of these four categories, karma yoga. It's, it's on purely my understanding. Okay? If you go to somebody else, they'll pick four entirely different verses just to represent these same concepts. Okay? So it's, it's very individual. These are the verses that kind of appeal to me, so I picked them up, all right? But then there are a few verses which I couldn't put into any of these categories, so I, ca- I call them other significant verses in Gita. Okay, so we'll go through them a little bit, all right? So I'm just going to go through these slides now, all right? So basically, you know, when we start the understanding of Gita, where, is, where does it fit in? Does everyone know which large text it's a part of? Gita. Where does it where does it happen? Which text does it appear in? Anybody? Go ahead. Mahabharat. Nobody knows. Have you heard of Mahabharat? No. Okay. Gita is a is a small segment of a large text called Mahabharat. So in fact, if you take a step back, there are two texts which are called epics, you know, in the Indian uh, context. They're called Ramayana and Mahabharat. All right. And they are both, you know, the kind of they, what is mentioned in these two texts, it forms the basic structure, you can say the basic substructure of the Indian society. Our social value structure is based on the, on the, on the, the values given in the two, these two texts. They are so important. On the surface, Mahabharat looks like or reads like a soap opera. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. It does read like a soap opera. There are all kinds of Weird people, wicked people, people who are jealous, angry, hateful, hatred, everything is there at, at the very deepest level, right? So on the surface, it reads like a soap opera, but the hidden message is so beautiful, so deep. That's why it forms the basic structure of our society in India, because the message is profound, all right? So that's what, it's, it's interesting, you know, that you through these stories, <laughs> which are very kind of day-to-day kind of stories, but message is very beautiful. So these are the two great epics, Ramayana and Mahabharata. And Mahabharata, you know, this is a, a Gita is a part of that. This is several thousand years old. Nobody knows exactly how old it is. Some people say 3000 BCE, so I'll put that. Who's the author of uh, Mahabharata? Vyasa. His name was Veda Vyasa. And who was the, the scribe? His name was Lord Ganesha. He was the scribe. There's a little story behind that, you know, that Veda Vyasa was looking for a scribe and Ganesha said, okay, hey, I volunteer. Then Vyasa said, okay, I have a condition. You have to write. No, Ganesha said, There's a, I have a condition. Right? That you will not stop dictating, 
and I will continue to write. The moment you stop, I'm going to stop being a scribe. So Vyasa said, okay, I take that challenge, but then there is a condition. I put condition also. Whatever you write, you have to understand it thoroughly <laughs> before you write it. <laughs> I mean, these are just stories, just to make it, I, I think just to make it interesting. Okay. It's known, the Mahabharata itself is known as the longest epic anywhere in the world. Why it is? It is 100,000 verses. 100,000 verses. All right. And this war that was fought, it actually is a war between two families, up to cousin families. Okay. Does everyone know that? Cousin families? Do you know the names of these cousin families? That, that's why I say it's, in India it's a subculture. Everyone knows from India. If you grow up in India, you'll know all this. Yeah. <laughs> that's just how it is. Because right from your early childhood, you're given these stories. You get to know it. Because it's a part of the structure. Okay? But that's important to know because this war was fought between two families who were cousins. And the cousins were Pandavas and Kauravas. And we'll come to that now. Okay? Now, I'm going to go back and, and, and into the, and just kind of understand what the context of the philosophy or the teachings that are given in the Gita are, right? We have to go back to the, to the Vedas. Have you heard the term Veda? What's a Veda? Anyone? What's a Veda? It's a, it's a very vast uh, knowledge of wisdom, so to say. Okay? And there are four of these, like she said, four Vedas. Do you know the names of the four Vedas? Atharvaveda. Very good. So there are four Vedas. Like I said, they are, they are again, the ancient uh, collection of knowledge, you can say. And in our, you know, in our culture, the understanding is that they were not created by human mind. They were given to these rishis, these yogis who were in state of deep meditation. And these are revelations provided to them in their meditation. So they are not called human creation. They are non-human creation. That's what they are called. Apaurusheya. That's the Sanskrit word for that. Okay? But in any case, uh, the last part of these Vedas, these Vedas have two major components. One is called the, the, the Karmakanda. Karmakanda is the one where all the uh, rituals are given. Rituals to attain all kinds of material and non-material objects. Okay? And the other is called the Jnana Kanda or the Knowledge and Wisdom Kanda. So the last part of the Vedas is called Upanishad. Upanishad is the last part of the Vedas which contains all the wisdom, all the knowledge. Okay? And what they claim is that the Bhagavad Gita it kind of squeezes all that knowledge from the Upanishad and puts it into the Gita in a smaller format. In a, if, you, if that's what you, you want to look at. Okay? 
So we'd say, it's like a, you can say a summary of, well, let's put it that way, of the, of the knowledge and wisdom in the Upanishads. But then there is a lot of other wisdom added to it. In addition to what's, what's taken from the Upanishad, there's a lot of other stuff added to it. Okay? So in its own way, it is, it, it's also now, in addition to the Vedas, Upanishads, and Yoga Sutra and all that, it says Gita itself is a very highly revered text. You know, everyone you know, worships it, reveres it. So if in India, you know, in the court system, if you have to go to a court, right, here, you know, you have to, the, the guy will put a Bible in front and he'll say, or put your hand on the Bible and say whatever I say, the truth and, not, and nothing but the truth, etc. That's exactly what happens in India. If you go to a court and you have to swear by something, it's the Gita. So, you know, the judge will put the Gita in front, put your hand on the Gita and say, by, I swear by Gita. That's how it is. That's how important it is. Okay? All right. So it's, again, just brief note. Uh, how strict are we on time? Eight o'clock. Uh, on time, 6.20. No, 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 no. How strict are we about oh, f- finishing oh. by eight? Not strict. <laughs> Not terribly strict? No. Can I go over a little? Because this is... A, it's not, I'm not going to be able to finish everything in two hours, I know that. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. A few minutes? Yeah. All right. So it has 18 chapters and 700 verses. Out of the 100,000 verses in, in Mahabharata, 700 verses only are allocated for the Gita. Okay. And it contains the teachings imparted by Lord Krishna. Right? Everyone knows these names, Krishna? Yes, no? Yes. Krishna. And who was it imparted to? This knowledge was given to who? Who is the recipient of this knowledge? Arjuna. Arjuna. You know this name? Arjuna. Who is Arjuna? But who was it? Who was he in this whole... Oh, like, wasn't he like the rightful owner of like the... another piece of land somewhere? Okay. No, I'm just talking of the families here. Oh, oh, oh. It's not King Pandavas. What's that? He was one of the Pandavas. One of the five Pandavas. That's, that's what I'm looking for. There are five Pandavas he was one of the five Pandavas. Okay? Now Krishna was a king himself, but then he was a cousin of and a friend of Arjuna. Okay? But he is represented here in the Gita as the supreme God, supreme consciousness. He is the manifestation, he is the incarnation of God himself. Okay? So that's how Krishna represents himself. You know, he, he talks of himself as I, and I being capital I with, you know, all-inclusive consciousness. Okay? So it's eternal wisdom, they say, uh, the teachings of this Gita transcend time and space. We all know that. It's, it's beautiful. I mean, the wisdom, the knowledge contained it is, is timeless. Okay? And it's a 
in addition to all the very deep philosophy, it also has, you know, you can kind of take out from there the practical wisdom how to lead your day-to-day life. Okay? So deep philosophy, hard to understand sometimes, <laughs> but yet when you kind of churn it all together and then bring something up, that what comes up is a beautiful guide how to lead your day-to-day life. Okay? Now it's written in a very poetic form and uh, there are two meters used in this. The most dominant meter is called Anushtup and the other is called Trishtup. Okay, Anushtup is about 85% of the Gita and of the entire Mahabharata and then the rest is the Trishtup. Okay? So I'm just giving you a sample of how it is recited, how it is chanted. When you, when, you, when you read the Gita, there is a certain way of chanting it in that meter. That's what, okay, so just pick, pick a, a representative verse from here. It's very common, very popular verse. So this is how it is read, okay. Karmanye vadhikaraste maphaleshu kadachana Ma karma phalahe turbhu, ma te sangostva karmani. So it goes like this. You know, and if you sit in, in a Gita chanting session, there are many people who do that on a regular basis. They chant Gita. You sit in this Gita chanting session and you see this rhyme, this going constantly. It becomes so beautifully meditative. You know, you may not understand a single word of what's going on, but there's just that rhythm, that beautiful rendition of this, uh, of these notes, very beautiful. <laughs> okay. So uh, these are the rules of that of that meter. I don't want to go through that. So now let's go through a, a quick uh, overview of what led to the war. All right. This is the story behind it. The story actually in the in the in the in the Mahabharata itself it goes several several generations back because you it starts off about seven or eight generations before this whole thing took place. But everything is important so to understand the characters and what what they are doing, why they are doing what they are doing, etc. You have to go through this whole story. But at our level, we're going to keep it very brief, very simple. So when they're Father died. So there were two brothers, right? Pandu and Dhritarashtra. Okay? They are the names. Okay. So when, when the father died, Pandu became the king. Okay? Dhritarashtra was slightly older, but he was blind. And as per the rules, if, if, there is a, if there is a brother who is not blind, then he will become the king. Blind person was not given the kingship. Okay? So that's how it was. And then, of course, Pandu had five children. We said that, right? You might know the names of the five brothers. Mm-hmm. Arjuna, Bhima, Nakula, and Very good, yeah. So, the five brothers. But then, the other guy, Dhrish Rasha, had how many sons? How many sons? 100. 100 sons and one daughter. <laughs> so, they were 101. So, these Kauravas were 100 in number. Pandavas are five in number. Okay. Now, uh, there was some curse and all that. You know, so this guy Pandu also died very young. But then when he died, even though blind, Dhritarashtra took over as the king. And then he took care of the, all these 105 sons, basically, in terms of their education, their training, and their, all the learning of you know, all the scriptures and everything. He took care of them. 
So they all had the same teachers, same gurus, and you know everything the same. They were cousins, and you know, uh, in in the, in the in in terms of the age, Duryodhana was the eldest among the Kauravas, and he was the most strongest, bravest, and the smartest among the Kauravas. And who was the eldest among the Pandavas? Yudhishthir. Okay, so Yudhishthir was the eldest among the Pandavas and Duryodhan was the eldest among the Kauravas. But the in terms of the in terms of the war skills, in terms of archery and other skills related to war, Arjuna was the best. That's why he was the he was the warrior king, the warrior prince. Okay? So Arjuna was the warrior prince. So these people, the way it's all developed in all their learning and in all, all their studies and training, Pandavas always would excel. These five Pandavas, just how it was. So these people, the other hundred, Duryodhana and his brothers, they were very jealous. So as they grew up, they finally decided to divide the kingdom. All right, so Pandavas took one part of the kingdom and the Kauravas took one part of the kingdom. All right. And these, these are the names, you know, Indraprastha and Hastinapur. In fact, from what I know now, Indraprastha is, is the same as current Delhi, I believe. Is that true? Yeah. That's what they say. Okay. So, uh, so Duryodhana was so jealous that he even tried to kill these people several times in multiple ways. All right. And, but then they were clever and they wanted to somehow you know, get rid of these people. So this guy, Duryodhana, had an uncle, his, his uh, mother's brother. His name was Shakuni. He was, he was a very clever guy, clever, twisted, in a, in a twisted way. <laughs> so they invited these Pandavas for a game of dice, you know, where you throw a dice and then you move and all that. Now, in those days, apparently, there was a custom that if one king invites you for a game of dice, you're supposed to honor that, you know, you're supposed to go there and do that, all right? So this is what happened. Now, this, I mean, this is what the story says, you know, that this Shakuni was clever enough to, that he could actually manipulate the weight of these dice or whatever, you know. So he, he was able to win the whole game, basically. No matter what, what these Pandavas did, these guys uh, won. Okay, so, I mean, they were betting everything, right? So they bet, they were betting their, their money, their wealth, their everything, kingdom. Finally, even the, you know, another interesting story. All the five had only one wife, same wife. I mean, same person was their wife. That's another story, how they got one wife. <laughs> We can get in. No, we don't want to get into that. Okay. But in any case, they they even uh, you know lost her in that whole betting game. So everything was lost. <laughs> so what was the punishment when they lost? They said, "Okay, you guys now because you've lost everything, you are our slaves, and as, you know what we'd like you to do is to stay out of here." go into a forest, live there for 12 years. But then add one more year. During that 13th year, 
You will have to be incognito. If anybody ever finds out who you are, you will go through the whole cycle of 12 years more, one more time. Okay? So that was the condition. And they somehow, you know, managed it. But even, even while they were in the, in the forest, you know, these Pandavas, they still, these Kauravas, they still tried to harm them, kill them. You know, they burnt their house, and all kinds of stuff. They, they, anyway, they survived somehow. <laughs> and then, when they came back, they said, okay, you know, we are, we are, we are done with our punishment, so give us our, our kingdom back. Now, this guy Duryodhana had managed this whole kingdom for these 13 years, and he was really, you know, powerful now. All right? And he had a taste of power now. He said, forget it, guys. You got to give nothing. <laughs> I'm not giving you anything. So they, you know, they said, you know, we, we, I mean, we deserve that kingdom. It was ours. Anyway, nothing. Said, okay, give us five villages. One village for each one of us. He says, five villages? I'm not going to give you the space that is taken by the tip of a needle. You get out of here. That's it. Okay, so then these people had to, you know, find a way to kind of do something. So they approached Krishna because Krishna was, like I said, Arjuna's relative and, and a friend and all that. And he was the you know, supreme master. So they approached him. So even Krishna went to Duryodhana and tried to pacify him and ask him for, you know, some favor and all that. He said, nothing doing. I'm not doing. In fact, Duryodhana even tried to capture Krishna kind of put him in jail or something, you know, they tried to do that. In any case, so now, nothing worked. And this guy was absolutely relentless, you know, this Duryodhana. So then war became inevitable. You know, they said, if that's what you want, you will fight a war. Nobody wanted a war. I mean, Krishna, Arjuna, and everyone said, we don't want a war. We don't want any bloodshed and all that. But then when these people totally refused, Nothing could be done. So that's how war happened. <laughs> All right. So then Arjuna says to, to, to Krishna, look, I have this chariot. Uh, you know, I want you to be a charioteer. And there was another story, you know, how Krishna decided to go with, uh, I mean, how Arjuna decided to go with Krishna. Krishna had a big army. And somehow, you know, again, we don't want to spend too much time on these stories. But that army was given to Duryodhana. Krishna gave his own army to Duryodhana and he gave himself to Arjuna. Arjuna was very happy with that. But he says, please become my charioteer, my driver of my chariot. Okay, so that's what the whole story began with. Okay? So, uh, so this dialogue is bit between the two people, Krishna and Arjuna. Mostly it is, uh, you know, Arjuna asking a couple of questions and Krishna doing the whole talking, basically. You know that. Okay. So there are these two armies, you know, facing each other. And Arjuna says, hey, Krishna, why don't you take my chariot right in the middle so I can observe the two sides and, uh, you know, see, you know, what kind of tactics I need to follow to, to fight the war. But then when he goes there, when he looks in front, he sees everybody, obviously he knows everyone. He sees his uncles, his cousins, his teachers, 
every teachers who in india teacher is considered a god okay you know they they say matra devo bhava pitra devo bhava guru devo bhava and all that you know you probably know this right so teacher is considered like a god and all the teachers were right there in front in in his enemy line the teachers who gave gave him every single piece of knowledge that he had whether it is related to the scriptures or warri or archery and all that fighting everything his uncles uncles who had you know brought him up right from his youngest days his cousins everyone so he now feels jittery he doesn't like the idea go to fight with these people who are my revered people kill them we start sweating so i can't do that there's no way i'm going to kill these people they are they are the people i have I've, i've admired all my life how can i kill them so he just lays down his his uh, armory and you know his bow and arrow he says i'm done i'm going home i'm going to a forest become a sanyasi become a recluse and that's it i'm done i'm not staying here <laughs> Okay, and he gives all kinds of reasons as to you know why he would not fight because you know it create all kinds of chaos in the society. You know, his women will become uh, you know all, all kinds of stuff he says, right? There will be thousands of widows, and widows are, was a big curse in those days. You know. <laughs> all right, so this is a, a, a like a. a depiction of this chariot so uh, arjuna is sitting at the back with his bow and arrow and krishna is the charioteer and there are five horses always show white horses now you know this is a a picture that also is kind of depicted in one of the upanishads katha upanishad is name they say that this chariot is like a uh, like a symbol so you know they give you this uh, symbolism uh, which is actually defined in the kathopanishad but it applies very very beautifully in the gita context also so what is the ch- the symbolism here the the uh, the chariot of the body okay this body is like a chariot right and there are five horses and what are these five horses five senses sense of sight touch taste and all that so these are the five senses tongue eye ears nose and skin and the reins you know that control the horses represent the mind because mind is supposed to control these senses doesn't happen but that's that's what they're supposed to do right <laughs> and the charioteer is the krishna is this this guy krishna who has nothing but pure pure consciousness right he is the pure intellect which is absolutely unattached to anything right arjuna is the passenger now arjuna of course is not clean rare i mean he has all kinds of uh, problems that's why he's given up his desire to fight because he's controlled by the ego not by the pure intellect okay 
So that's why he is represented as the, as the passenger. But then this body or the life is the chariot. And then, you know, we have individual conflicts in the mind. So everything they say is happening within us. This whole war of, of Mahabharata is happening within us all the time. Constantly we are fighting. You know, you probably have heard the term upper mind and the lower mind or something like that. Right? We always fight. Right? The upper mind says one thing, the lower mind does something totally different. Okay, so that's how this is the kind of the background of this whole uh, the context you know, in which Gita is presented. So it's a war between good and evil and I've kind of given my understanding of what the main message is and the way I look at it. It says, actively resist evil. Actively. If you have to fight the war, that's okay. But you're fighting evil. And Duryodhana, that Kaurava king, he represented evil. Okay? Because he absolutely had no, no reason to, to take away their kingdom. And know that your eternal spiritual self and everything else is transient. And that's the main message of Gita, that look, we are only the soul, the self. Everything else, the mind, body, everything is very transient. It comes and goes. And you have to stabilize the mind by overcoming desires and do your duty with non-attachment. There is a very, very strong component of non-attachment. The term, Sanskrit word for non-attachment is, does anybody know? You might know. Vairagya. Vairagya is the Sanskrit term for non-attachment. It's a very common used word and you might hear it. As you read more Gita, you will come across that word very frequently. Vairagya. Okay. Do your duty as a sacrificial offering. That's the component of the Bhakti Yoga or devotional yoga. And, uh, and then true renunciation is renunciation of doership. You can read that sentence there. Doership. That means I am not the doer. Okay? That, that whole context will come and we will explain that. What, what does that mean when we say I am not the doer? And the, the next is surrender to God with devotion. And then they know the truth about the three gunas. You know, all these are kind of in my understanding these are the main messages uh, when you read the Gita. Okay. Alright. So uh, like I mentioned there are Four major paths of yoga, they are called karma yoga, action, jnana yoga, knowledge or wisdom, and bhakti yoga, devotion, dhyana yoga is meditation. Okay? So, are there chapters allocated to these? No. <laughs> Gita is, is, it has messages all over the place. There is, there is no real structure to it. No real structure. Okay. There is some, you know, you can think of it very kind of a loose kind of structure in some places. But in most cases, you'll find Karma Yoga in chapter 2, and Karma Yoga in chapter 7, Karma Yoga in chapter 14, 16, 18, everywhere. Right? How many chapters are there? How many chapters in Gita? Total? 18. How many verses? 
700. <laughs> How many days did the war last? Hmm? One. How many days did the war last? Eighteen days. Eighteen chapters, eighteen days. The war lasted. <laughs> one, so one chapter a day. <laughs> one chapter a day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard, you know. There's just so much detail in the whole story. It's and it's a complex story because there's so many characters. Each character has their own kind of, uh, you know, uh, stupidities you can call them or nuances or strange behavior patterns. Everyone, you know. Every chapter, you know, every character can be have their own story. Okay, so let me. Uh, these are random, okay? Everything is pretty random. Like the whole cha- Gita is random and my thoughts are also kind of randomly put together, okay? <laughs> so, uh, uh, let's go through some of these verses now uh, representing each of these concepts called Karma Yoga, Jnana Yoga, Bhakti Yoga and Dhyana Yoga. Meditation, knowledge, wisdom and devotion and action. If at any time you have questions, please interrupt. Okay. Don't let me go on unless you, you think you understand something, all right? So please interrupt. So, again, this one, uh, I'm going to read the, the, the English translation only and then see if we can get some ideas as to what that might mean, all right? So it says, treating pleasure and pain gain and loss, victory and defeat alike. Engage yourself in your duty and fight. And thus you will incur no sin. Now what does it mean here? The reason why Krishna is urging Arjuna to fight is because first of all Arjuna was of the warrior race. You know in India there are four kind of, they are called Varna. Varna is a, you can call them as, how would you translate that? Uh, Race. Like, uh, four categories. Caste. Four caste, you can category, call. I mean, later on it was, caste, but initially. Four categories of four people. Categories. Yeah. All right, anyway, four caste, let us say. That's yeah. okay. <laughs> All right. So, you know, the, at the lowest level, it's called Shudra. They, they are the people who serve. At the next level, they, I mean, again, they have, they have given levels to these. So the next level is called the Vaishya, where the people do all kinds of trading stuff, trade, you know, business, business people. Then there are the, the people who fight. Okay, they are the Kshatriyas. And finally, people who do kind of teach, give knowledge, and, uh, you know, they are into meditation and all that. They are called Brahmanas. So... Arjuna belonged to the Kshatriya class or the warrior class. And it is their duty to fight. If they have a cause, they must fight. That's their duty. That's their life. That's what they have, you know, their title is for. So he says, you are a Kshatriya and you must fight. 
This guy says, I'm going to become a recluse, I'm going to go to the forest and, you know, I'm going to become a sannyasi and I don't want to fight. But then he says that you can fight, I mean, the, the whole idea is to fight, but whether you lose or win, you will not be disturbed. Whether you, whether you gain something or lose something, it doesn't matter in life. What it says is pleasure and pain. You know, these are that's why, you know, they say Gita has concepts which are very, very difficult to follow in life. Very difficult because we are all driven by our own ego and our own samskaras, our own past impressions and we have, you know, just so much stuff in our mind that it is hard to follow. How can you treat pleasure and pain the same? <laughs> How can you, you know, treat gain and loss the same? Victory and defeat the same? So that's where this wisdom is very deep. Hard to follow, but once you start understanding the depth and the, and the nuances of this of this of this wisdom, you then start recognizing its value. Okay, so what he says is your duty is what defines your job, your work. What is your duty? Fight. Are you going to be afraid? Whether oh my God, I'm going to lose. These people are going to kill me. Why I don't want to fight? That's not the idea, right? You, are you going to feel pain? You, he's already feeling pain, right? Arjuna is already feeling pain. Pain of what? Pain of having to kill his own people. He's in pain. He's suffering right now. That's why he doesn't want to fight. But this guy is saying, forget about pain. Forget about pleasure. You know, you tell it. Who, the guy who was totally depressed, he's sad, he's in mental pain and agony and he says, you fight because that's your job. job. That's why it takes 700 verses. Much much repetition goes on in the, in the Gita. Much repetition. You, I'm sure when you read that you must, must have observed. There's so much repetition. So, that message has to go through. It takes time. So he says, treat pleasure and pain alike, gain and loss alike, and then, of course, when you do that, even if you kill people, you will not incur any sin. If you don't do that and then kill people, then you're, you're incurring sin. You know? So, you know, actually I was reminded of a story. It came in some Buddhist context. You know, there was a war going on, fighting going on, and, and you know, they will first do horse fight and then, you know, you know they eventually end up in hand-to-hand fight, right? That's how the whole system was, and end up in hand-to-hand fight. So this guy had a dagger and he subdued his enemy and this guy was lying on the floor. He put his foot on his chest and raised his dagger to strike him. While he was raising his dagger, this guy who was on the floor, out of disgust, spat on this guy's face. You know. Now his dagger stood there. He refused to strike. This guy is in pain. He says, go ahead, kill me. You know, I'm, I'm in, in totally in your control. Why don't you kill me? Let me, get, let me get rid of my suffering. Kill me. He says, I can't kill you. Why? Because now I'm angry at you. 
If I'm angry, my ego is working. If my ego is working and I kill you, it'll be a murder. Not my duty. My duty is to kill you out of my, my responsibility. Now, if I kill you, I'll be treating, I'll be killing you out of anger. I don't want to do that. That's not my training. I'm going to wait till my anger goes off, then I'll kill you. <laughs> okay. So this is one of the verses that uh, everyone in India kind of knows this, you know. That your choice is in action only, never in the result thereof. It's a very, very common, very, very popular verse. Do not be the author of the results of action. Let your attachment be to, to not to be in action. Okay? So, you know, uh, when I was growing up, uh, many, you know, in, in fact, in, in our own school, uh, in the main principal's room, this verse was inscribed on the wall. Some schools, in, even temples, you go there, you know, this verse is always there, you know. <laughs> so, and this is the main message of Karma Yoga. What it says is, you have to do your duty. You have to do your duty. But you cannot be driven by the end result. You get this message here? Okay. What happens when you're only driven by the end result? What happens? What can happen? When you're only driven by the end result... The end result is not what we expect, then you'll be unhappy. You'll be unhappy. But even while doing the job, if you're only focusing on the end result, can you stay focused on your job? No, because, oh my God, what will happen if I don't get this promotion? What will happen if I don't earn this money? You know, and you're constantly thinking of that. And then you start thinking, if I don't earn this much money, if I don't get this promotion, my, my family will suffer and this and that. And you're constantly distracted. Then you cannot focus on what you're trying to do or on your own main job. Okay? So, what he says is, do not be the author of your outcome, of your action. You cannot be the author of your outcome. What can you do? You can only do your duty. Duty to the best of your ability. You do that, leave the rest. Okay? But at the same time, just because you are not able to control your output, should I just sit and still then, you know, if I'm not able to control my output, you know, why should I work? Sit and inactive. Right? That's what he says in the second line. Do not be attached to inaction. Action is absolutely important. That's very highly emphasized in the Gita. Action is absolutely important. You have to act. Okay? But yet, you're not the doer. And because you're not the doer, you cannot dictate your own outcome or the result of your action. Do the best you can. Do to your best skill, best ability, and then let it happen. Whatever happens, take it as a grace, as a gift, from who? From somebody higher. Right? They, they control everything. Right? So that's this message here. Very beautiful message. Like I said, one of the very, very popular verses. Okay, so then he continues with the same theme, basically. In many of the verses, the theme is the same. So he says, do your duty to the best of your ability, with your mind attached to the Lord. 
abandoning worry and selfish attachment to the results. The very, very subtle concept that we have to all understand that when we say non-attachment, you know, what does it mean when we say non-attachment? Dispassion. What do you understand by non-attachment in this concept? It's just not being attached. Like, knowing mm-hmm. things aren't really yours. Like, you have shelter, but you don't really, it's not really yours in this essence. It's not yours, yeah. What else? So it's a, it's a difficult, you know, it's a, it's a concept which we have to kind of imbibe into our own, our understanding. So there are two, actually two terms. One is non-attachment, one is detachment. There's a subtle sort of difference. You understand the difference between the two? Non-attachment and detachment? No. No. So, let's say you are attached to your cup of coffee at 7 a.m., all right? You have to have that, otherwise, you know, things just don't work, right? Okay, you're already attached. Now, because of the attachment, you suffer, because someday you may not be able to get a cup of coffee and then you're miserable. So you want to get rid of that attachment. That's called detachment. You're already attached to something, but now you're trying to get rid of that attachment because it's making you suffer in some way, right? You get that? That's detachment. Now, you have never tasted a glass of wine. Never. Right? But, but you know that it is probably not very good for you, so you don't want to get attached to it. That's non-attachment. Do you understand the subtle difference? Mm-hmm. You're not attached to something right now, but then you want to stay away from that. That's non-attachment. But if you're already attached, get out of that, that's detachment. But, you know, Basically, the concept is the same, that we don't want to be attached to the extent that it gives us pain or suffering. That's the main idea of non-attachment, right? Anytime we are attached to something, it makes us suffer, because what we are attached to may not happen the way we want it. We have no control, right? You are attached to your yoga practice so much that you absolutely practice yoga at 7 a.m. in the morning. Absolutely. And one day, you know, you have a little cold and you have a little headache and you cannot do that. Oh my God, I missed my yoga practice. Attachment. None of that. Get the idea? Okay. You cannot get attached to the action or the outcome of the action. Can you be attached to a person? You, I mean, we are. Is the question, should you be? No. We should not be. Can we be? Of course we are. We are attached to people. We are attached to our family. We are attached to our kids, our friends, family, everyone. But should you be? And what does it mean to be non-attached? Something that you really have to think about. You know, I can give a silly example, you know. (laughs) Let's say you have a a child and uh, you go to the the, the kid's room and it's all, you know, kind of cluttered with with things and all that, okay? And you start 
shouting at the child, I told you to clean this up, right? Why did we do that? Because we are attached to the concept of a clean room, right? We are attached to that, right? In our mind, that's the best thing to do. What does the kid think? Hey, it's my room. I can do what I want in here. You know, I like it this way. You know, I can find whatever I want. You know, I'm enjoying it. So this attachment to this concept of cleanliness, you're suffering yourself and you're making your kid suffer. <laughs> because of that. That's attachment. So non-attachment is not being attached to anything like that. So when you say family, you think you're attached to your child and you want the best for your child. But in the process, you're making both suffer. <laughs> so attachment and non-attachment are difficult concepts, but you have to apply it to everything in life. Whether it's family, whether it's possessions, whether it is money or whatever. Okay? So I actually, you know, very recently I wrote an article on, on this concept of non-attachment on my blog. If you get a chance, please read it, you know. Might get some ideas. Alright? So, uh, basically what it's saying is that, look, if your mind is attached to the Lord, that means your mind is attached to that higher consciousness, then there's a much better chance that you will not be attached. Because then, you think that that consciousness is, is my goal eventually. And, uh, you know, these little things are you know, non-essential then. My attachment to my food, my attachment to my job, money, possessions, and everything, they're minor. Okay? So then, then you will not be attached to the results also, and then you can remain calm in both success and failure. This is actually one of the definitions of yoga in Gita. In Gita, there are three places where yoga, the word yoga is defined in its own way, right? So the, the word used here is samatvam yoga uchyate. That means that's the definition of yoga. What is the definition of yoga? The word used is samatvam. Samatvam means loosely translated as equanimity, uh, evenness, being equal in every situation, e- even-minded you can say. So that's called yoga. Evenness of mind. That means mind is totally unperturbed. Does anybody remember the definition of yoga in the Yoga Sutras? Have you studied the Yoga Sutras? No. Not at all? Okay. No. Not yet. We begin next month. Hmm? We begin next month. Okay, okay. Okay. So the, uh, since I brought the topic up, the definition of yoga in the Yoga Sutras is, uh, it's, it's the, the second sutra in chapter 1 where it says yoga is the ability to calm the mind under all circumstances. Keep the mind peaceful, calm, undisturbed, unperturbed by what is going on. Okay? Sanskrit words are chitta vritti nirodha. You probably have heard these words, right? So that's the definition, which is very similar to what it's saying here. Calmness, evenness of the mind, he says. All right? So calm in both success and failure. Same thing, again, he says, therefore, without being attached to the fruit or the result of your activities, you should act as a matter of duty. Again, the same words are repeated in different ways, okay? 
And only, only when you can work without attachment can you attain you know, the highest goal, superconsciousness, non-attachment. You know, in, in the yoga, I always like to go back to yoga sutras because that's our guiding text, right, for our yoga practices. So there is also a, the same statement there. The word used is in yoga sutras is vairagya. Okay, vairagya. Okay, and again it says that by you by going to the ultimate level, highest level of vairagya, you will attain your ultimate goal. Okay, that's in the yoga sutras. You will come to that when you study the sutras. Okay, so again the same concept. Like I said, Krishna. There's a lot of repetition. Same concept is repeated multiple times in different, slightly different words, okay, different contexts. So here again, the same thing. He who gives up attachment to action and their fruits, okay, and then is independent and ever content. Nirashraya is more than independent. That means you don't need anybody else's support. Yeah, same thing, okay. And even though you are doing work, you are engaged in action all the time, but because you have no desire or no expectation of the outcome, you are good to go. Basically, you are, even though you are doing something, you are fully involved, basically you are not doing anything. In, in effect, you are not doing it. See, there is ho- this whole concept of karma, which is the action, and karma phala which is the outcome of the action. Okay, and there is this whole context of the theory of karma. Have you heard the term karma in that context? Theory of karma? No? What do you understand by that? Well, I understand that there are three types of karma. Uh-huh. Future, guys. Yes. And it's not necessarily the way that we think of it here in the West. Yes. Where you uh, you do something that isn't good and bad karma comes back to you. Right. So uh, basically, uh, you know, they say it's a bag of karma that we carry from one life to the next life. You know, bag of karma. Karma is a collection of your actions as well as the expected outcome for that karma, right? So whatever we do, whatever experiences we have in life, everything gets stored in our memory, okay? And then everything, every action that we do, okay? So it's all categorized, right? Whether it's, in the Yoga Sutra he says, whether it's white, black, or mixed. (laughs) That's the term Patanjali uses. White action means good action. Black means bad action. Mixed means, you know, a mixture of the two. <laughs> okay? And then based on your actions, you will get the result. And the result can be attained in this life or in a subsequent life. This concept of rebirth, reincarnation, is a very integral part of the yoga philosophy. It's integral part of the Gita philosophy, integral part of the overall Indian culture, Indian philosophy. Okay? Patanjali also talks about it, Bhagavad Gita talks about it, it's, it's just a part of the uh, basic structure of our uh, understanding of life. Okay? 
So when we are, let's say we are practicing yoga, doing a lot of meditation, and you know we attain a certain level of mental clarity, a certain level of maturity in our spiritual growth. Okay, but obviously we may not attain our attain our final goal in this life. So when we take a next birth, what 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 they are saying is. You don't start with a clean slate, no. You start exactly where you left off. This whole bag of where you are now, it goes with you. <laughs> so you are, you are assigned that bag. So that's what she says, you know, there's a three types of karma. So the karma that you're born with, it's called praradha karma in Sanskrit. That's what you're starting with. Out of that whole big bag of bank balance, you can call it. Okay? So that's how it is all mentioned in the in the text here. All right. So uh, so uh, again the same thing. You know, again everyone is forced to act helplessly. Helplessly means you're always acting. Even sleep is considered an act. In our understanding of all the actions that we do, even sleep is considered an act action. So we are acting, whether we are eating, working, talking, no matter what it is, everything is action. It happens all the time. Why? Why do we act all the time? <laughs> Again, we'll go back to the, uh, the three gunas. I mean, this word is mentioned here, the three gunas. Does everyone know the term guna? Have you heard the term guna? Three gunas? That's a very, very important concept and it is very predominant both in the Yoga Sutra as well as the, as the Gita. So you will find that you have to kind of dig into that concept and understand it. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, but maybe it's a good idea just to mention now what the three gunas are and then we'll go into a little more understanding of that. So every one of us, every, everything in this universe, they say, everything, every entity in this universe, whether living entity or non-living entity, is a composite of three gunas. Okay, guna, G-U-N-A. Okay, try not to translate that into English, please. Okay? <laughs> Keep it as it is, three gunas. What are these three gunas? They are labeled as sattva, rajas, and tamas. Now, in terms of a broad kind of understanding of what these represent, sattva represents purity, something very positive, something you can think of it as spiritually oriented, something very meaningful, not filled with any kind of negativity. Okay? That's sattva, purity. And rajas represents action motivation, drive, you know, gung-ho kind of stuff, you know, the personality which is labeled as type 2 personality, things like that, okay, ambition, all right, and many times that ambition and that, uh, and that drive leads us to do negative things, we can, we can do harmful things to others, okay, and that brings all kinds of unhappiness to us. 
So sattva is generally associated with a pleasant kind of a nature, pleasant feelings, positive feelings. Rajas action is associated with a negative kind of feeling. Negative means I, eventually it will lead to pain, eventually it will lead to suffering, eventually it will lead to some kind of a negative emotion, anxiety, depression, all those are associated with rajas. Tamas is what? Hmm? Laziness. Laziness, dullness, sleepiness, couch potato-ness, as they call it. Right? <laughs> you know, when you are dominated by tamas, you know, I, you know, I like to give the example that all you want to do is to, to you know, sit down with a glass of beer, with a bag full of potato chips, and watch a football game or something like that. You know, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> And that, you do that when you say, oh, my mind is fried, you know, I, you know I, I have absolutely no energy to do anything. That's tamas. Okay, but then everything, like I said, everything in this universe, whether it's live or non, non-living, you know, entity, they're all composite of something, some combination of these three gunas. Everyone, and every moment, it changes. Okay, right now, maybe you're Mind is full, full of sattva and that's why you are here, uh, you know, attending this talk. But then your mind may become rajas, rajasic. Okay? Some thought that comes in the mind, oh, this guy is talking such nonsense, you know, I can't listen to him. You know, that's, that's, I'm on a runaway from here. You know, that's rajas. Or you find it so boring, the tamas takes, tamas takes over, you start dozing off. You know. So these things can happen all the time. Const, constant change going on. So, because of these three gunas, we are always propelled into action. Always. So we cannot sit still, even for a moment. Because these gunas are going to be constantly acting. Okay? So, this is a very famous verse, because what it says is that the actions arise from these three gunas, sattva, rajas and tamas, the knower of the gunas knows that all actions are caused by the triple modes of nature. Only the ignorant things that I and the doer. Now here, you know, you have to understand the term I. When we say I, what are we, re- what are we referring to? I. Ego. Uh-huh. Hmm? Uh-huh. Ego. No, this I. This I, well, ego thinks that I am the doer. But who is the real I? That's the question. Right? The real I is the pure self, pure consciousness. That's who I am. But because of my ignorance, my ego has taken over and my ego now thinks, I am the doer. I did this. I own this. I represent this. Then that that I becomes the big I then. I am the doer. You know, I have attained so much in my life. I've consolidated my position in my company. I have amassed so much wealth. I have this beautiful house, and I have this lovely car. And you know, I'm the owner of this beautiful company. I did all this, and all that ego eventually leads to suffering. Eventually, everything leads to suffering. Right? That's what Patanjali says. That's what Gita says. That unless 
you detach yourself from that limited I and become the big I. <laughs> okay? The big I is the pure consciousness. Then I'm, I'm just pure. I'm just pure being. Everything else, this whole body, mind, intellect, everything is given to me so I can experience life. That's all. But I am not all this. You know, I am beyond. I am separate from all this. And that's the whole concept of this understanding that if you think that I am the doer, then you are ignorant. That's caused by ignorance. You have to eventually come to the understanding that I am not the doer. Who is the doer? These three gunas. They are the ones who are propelling us to do things, and which is essential. Nobody denies that. I'm not going to be identified by those three gunas. I'm not going to be identified with this mind-body complex. So that's the whole idea here. I hope it comes across. So I have a question on that. If, so if the Rajas is more, I wrote down more, like more negative, more, sometimes it's a negativity, but does that sometimes catapult you more into like a status and then that gives you more attachment? And that's why? Yes. Rajas will give you attachment. Is that the question? So what happens is rajas is the one which drives our ego, right? Our ego functions. And what, what the ego does is gives us an idea of I like this, I hate this. I, I want to do this, I don't want to do this. Okay? If I have an experience, let's say uh, you eat a piece of cake and you like it. Okay? Then you get, develop attachment to that. Because you want to repeat that experience. And that attachment becomes painful eventually, like I said, you know. And that's all driven by rajas. Desire. Desire, first of all, you taste something and then when you like it, you get attached to it. When you get attached to it, you want to repeat it more often. That becomes, you know, in the mind, the, the term they use, in Patanjali uses the term, even in, in Gita, they use the term vasana. You know, there are two terms that you must understand, samskara and vasana. Okay? So, they're very commonly used everywhere. In all our scriptures, all our texts, those two terms will be used, samskara and vasana. Do you roughly understand these terms? Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, what's samskara and what's vasana? So, vasana is a kind of a lust, desire, yes. something Yeah. So what you like, what you dislike becomes a samskara. Because that, det- that determines your, almost like your personality. This is how things should be done. And this is how things should not be done. Because you have strong likes and dislikes and you have attachment to them. So there becomes your belief system eventually, your habits, your belief system and all that. That's exactly what, uh, what she's, Pratima, right? You see? Yeah. Pratima, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so that's what likes and dislikes. So, does that help you uh, with your question? You have something else in mind? No, I think it does. It's just it's hard. It's it's a new concept for me. <laughs> it's a new concept. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I understand. Yeah. 
you know, there are so many concepts in the, in the Gita, you know, it, everything is new. So that's why we say you can go through the Gita multiple times, but eventually it all boils down to has the Gita gone through us, you know. And that's the, the, the main. Okay, so uh, please keep asking questions, otherwise, you know, I can just keep going. Okay. So, again, this is the same thing, it's repeating the same thing, but I just said, the desire and anger, which are born out of rajas, the, the guna called rajas, all the desire and anger, are insatiable. If you have a desire, strong desire for something, desires are insatiable. Why? If you satisfy one desire now, it will create more desires. If you, you know, if you say, okay, my goal is to earn, uh, let's say, $500 in a week. You attain that. Are you happy with that? Are you going to be okay with that? No. Next week you want to, uh, you know, get $510. You know, it's insatiable. And if it doesn't happen, then you get angry. And then anger is, is totally, un, you know, kind of uh, uncontrollable sometimes. So that's what he's saying. That... <clears throat> That these, the, these desire and anger, which are which are a result of this rajas guna, right? <coughs> they are insatiable, okay, and they lead you to great sin. That's what it is. The word used is papa. Papa means sin. Sin means a, 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 an action which is not approved by our ancient scripture. That's what they call sin. You know. So in our ancient scriptures and everything is described, what you should do, what you should not do, what is okay for you, what is not okay for you, you know. And, and of course there's a long process, but essentially what is not considered good, if you do that, it is sin. <laughs> Papa. Okay? So you have to think of these as your greatest enemy. Anger and desire. Okay? Now, you know, uh, when we say desire, what does it mean? <laughs> does it mean you don't desire anything in life? What does it mean? Should you have no desire at all? Should you have no desire for having a job maybe? Or maybe you no desire to, to find a suitable partner for your life? Maybe no desire to have some money? What does it mean to have no desire? Yes. It's detachment, basically. That's what it is. It doesn't mean that you cannot desire a piece of cake or, you know, a piece of candy. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, to me, you know, I, I want to enjoy my, my food. I really want to enjoy my food. So I have a desire for a certain food. I go ahead and get it. Now, is it like um, you desire for something and um, you don't get it, you should be okay with it? Absolutely okay with that. That's, so that's the the attachment part, right? So you're detached. You have a desire. It's okay. Without desire, can we function? <laughs> yeah. That's the question. Can we even function without desire? It's the desire that makes us work in life. You know, it's your desire to become a yoga instructor. And that's why you're here. Right? Without desire, nothing can happen. But the question is, 
is that desire making you a slave of your desire, of your outcome of your desire? That's the main thing. Okay? How does contentment then? Because contentment's a big thing as well. Yes. How does that fall in? With Same thing. Desire? Is it just to to keep your desire to a point where, like you said, if you don't get it, you're still content? Yes. Yes. What whatever you get as a result of your desire, as a result of your, your action, is propelled by your desire. Desire is propelled by the rajas guna. So rajas guna impels your desire. Desire you know, prompts you to act. And then you have an expectation, the outcome of the action. And it is that attachment to that expected outcome which is the cause of all the problems. There's nobody saying that you should not have desire. All right? Desire is, is what makes us do things in life. This is what makes us live basically. But do not get attached to anything that is expected out of that attachment, that, that, that action. Does that help? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always give the example that I, I enjoy eating mangoes, for example. My favorite fruit is mango, right? I have a desire. Sometimes I go out of my way to find a mango. <laughs> if it's not available in one store, I go to the other store. <laughs> but still, you don't find mangoes what we get in India. That's the truth. <laughs> but eventually, if I come back without a mango, I will okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll eat an apple instead. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's how it is. <laughs> so, what he's saying is Rajoguna is the one that, oh, I'm I'm going to have to go faster, sorry. Well, we don't have too much time. All right. Let's move on to... So those are the concepts in karma. So basic theme of karma yoga is do your action, do your duty at, to the best of your ability, but do not get attached to the outcome of your action. That's the karma yoga, main concept, main theory. Okay? So that's the main, one of the main messages of Gita. You understand that? Keep that in mind. Jnana yoga now. Jnana Yoga is all about knowledge, wisdom, a deeper understanding of who we are, what we are, etc., etc. Okay? So here, you know, in, in the Yoga Sutra also, if you go to the yoga uh, section, you will understand there are two entities which are always defined, right? In the yoga I'm talking about. Okay? Two entities. One is called Purusha, the other is called Prakriti. Okay. This is something you will learn in the yoga concept. Purusha is the, the pure soul, pure self cap, with a capital S. Okay, Purusha. And Prakriti is everything else. Basically all this mind, body, this universe, you know, as we see material. You can call it the material being. That's Prakriti. Okay. Now, what, what, what the message in Gita is that this soul, I'm just summarizing the whole message of Gita. And it is the message in every scripture that we have, Upanishads and all that. This soul is everlasting. It never dies. It never was born in the first place. It never dies. Therefore, if I am that soul, (laughs) essentially what it means is I never die. (laughs) That's the main message of this concept of, of Gita, Jnana Yoga. I'm indestructible because I am the soul. But 
my problem starts when I start identifying myself with this body, with this mind, because this body is going to disintegrate one day. It's going to disappear. If I'm identified with this body, I'm in pain, I'm suffering. Because, oh my God, this is who I was, now I'm not there. Okay? So, in in an essence, that's the crucial message of Gita in, in terms of the Jnana Yoga, knowledge or wisdom. That, look, we have to understand that our true identity is nothing but being a pure soul, consciousness. Nothing but consciousness. Okay, and that is without a beginning and without an end. That's something we have to understand. So let's go through these verses and see what they what they tell us. So the, this first one I picked is, just as the embodied soul continuously passes from childhood to youth to old age, similarly, at the time of death, the soul passes into another body. And therefore the wise are not deluded. They are not they don't get any suffering because of this fact that we're going to die one day. Okay? Very important verse here. The embodied soul. What they're saying is the soul, which is a part of this body, sort of, in a sense. Okay? Right? So, just like the body. Body goes through childhood, old age, youth, and all that. Right? And eventually it's going to disappear. It's going to merge back into the five elements. We all say that we are a composite of five elements, right? The elements being? What are the five elements? Water, air, fire, earth, wind. And? Can you count five? Water, air, earth, fire, that's four. Number five? We said air. What's number five? Ether. Ether. There you go. Space. (laughs) Okay. So we are a composite of these five elements and we merge back into them at the physical level. But then what goes into the next body? I mentioned that, right? This whole bag full of karmas, which is a part of our mind, mind, intellect, ego and all our memories and samskaras and vasanas, that's all put into the bag and then goes attached, gets attached to the next body. Okay, but that's, that's what he's saying, that look, this soul is not going to be destroyed, it's just going to be attached to a different body. Okay, what's going to be destroyed is the physical body. All right? So, if you know this, then you're not going to suffer this whole thing okay, because of this. All right, that's what this sutra says, this shloka says, this verse, shloka. Does everyone know the word shloka? Yes, no, shloka. Have you heard the word shloka? The Sanskrit word for the verse is shloka. So there are 700 shlokas in Gita. Okay, keep that in mind. Okay. So now he's saying, Krishna is telling Arjuna that the one who knows this self, capital S, to be indestructible, timeless, unborn, and not subject to decline, 
The body is subject to decline, mind is subject to decline, but the soul is not. How and whom does that person kill? Right? If one knows that this, this, this soul is indestructible, it never had a beginning, never have, will have no end, who are you killing? Who are you, who are you making somebody else kill? Can you cause somebody to kill? Or can you kill yourself? What's being killed? What's being killed is the physical body. It's going to die anyway. Right? But you are doing this because you have recognized the fact that this body currently is involved with evil. Therefore, it's your duty to destroy this body. Because the soul which is attached to the body is not going to be destroyed anyway. It's going to find its own new physical body. But because the evil is associated with this body and mind, it's your duty to destroy that. (laughs) Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. Okay. Just as a person puts on new garments after discarding old ones, the individual soul acquires new bodies after casting away the old bodies. It's a very, again, a very popular uh, verse, very commonly uh, uh, repeated, you know. It's quoted very, very frequently. Very popular verse. It's in a different meter, so this, this goes something, it's different, the meter is different, so this goes like this. Vasansi jirnani yatha vihaya navani grihnati naroparani tatha sharirani vihaya jirna anyani sanyati navani dehi. Little different meter, very beautiful. See? That's how it goes. Okay. So now he says that the indweller of this physical body, who is the indweller? That's the soul, that's the Atma, the, the, the soul with, and the self with the capital S. So the indweller of the physical body, the one who is self-controlled, having renounced all actions mentally by knowledge, through knowledge, remains happily in the nine-gated city, neither performing action nor causing anybody else to act. Okay, so this is a, again a very important uh, verse because what it's saying is that you have to have full self-control. Your mind should be, it should be, uh, the word he uses is sannyasya. San, you know, there is a term called sannyasi. <laughs> okay. So the mind, when he is, when it is totally in control, in, in, a, in a state of sannyasa basically, that means it has no more distractions, no more desires, and it is nicely controlled and, and, and fully contented, so to say. So that kind of mind, manasa sannyasya, okay, then you can be happy. That entity, which is the soul, which is a, which is residing within this body. Now this mind, because it has, it is devoid of all kinds of desires and outcomes. So this self can stay happy. It doesn't go through any suffering. Okay? Then the word they use is uh, Navadwar, Navad, nine-gated city. 
So this body is represented as having nine gates. Can anybody guess what these nine gates are? You can guess. What are the nine gates of the body? Go ahead, go ahead. Name, uh, list them. The nostrils, the ears. Two, two eyes, two, uh, two ears, two nostrils, one mouth. That's seven. And the two gates at the bottom, we know that, right? <laughs> okay. So, nine gates. That's why they say it's a nine-gated city. Always. They mention that word many, many times in many different scriptures. All right. Mind has to be fully in control. That's the key here. When you do the work with the mind under control, then the whole soul, the soul, otherwise the soul is attached to the ego. And that goes through the same suffering that the ego goes through. But when the mind is in control and you're doing action without any act, you know, results, any expectation of the results, the soul is happy at that point. <laughs> All right. So, again, this very uh, important statement that, look, death, physical body, death is certain for one who is born. And birth is certain for that, for, for, who, for the one who is deceased, who is dead. Therefore, you should not suffer. You should have no lamentation about this in- inevitability, right? This is inevitable. You know, everyone is eventually going to die. If you're born, you're going to die. And if you die, you're going to be reborn anyway. Same message he repeats over and over again. Look, these guys, they deserve to be killed at this time. Maybe they'll get a better life next time. (laughs) But right now, they deserve to be killed because they are doing evil stuff. This message goes on and on in in the Gita in multiple different ways. Suicide is, uh, is basically out of uh, a sense of, you know, lack, as they say, that, that I, I'm not adequate in, in my life. It's, it's actually crime, they say, to, to, have, to do suicide is a crime because you're, you're, you're not aware of who you are. You are so deeply attached to everything else and then that attachment makes you believe that you are absolutely sen- that useless, you're worth nothing. That's what causes suicide, right? It's a total lack of self-respect, uh, call it you, self-understanding, self-esteem, zero. When you have zero self-esteem, you just kill yourself, basically. It's the highest, or you can say the ultimate state of ego being so deeply in power that nothing else matters. And you just have no sense of being, you know, basically. That's what causes people to, to, to commit suicide. But, I mean, that's interesting just because, I mean, uh, in our religion too, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm Christian Catholic. I mean, that's the ultimate, one of the ultimate sins too. So it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it follows kind of the same way. Yeah, you know, if you, I mean, most religions, the basic concepts are very similar, I think. Yeah, they are. <laughs> you know, I never would have thought it would have been, especially you know, Hindu and Catholic or Christian, but 
There are obviously there are differences, but you know, at the at the basic practical level, most concepts are very same. You know, in most religions, whether it is Christian, Islam, or Jewish or whatever, you know, they say you know, concepts are very similar. Okay, the mind which follows in the wake of the wandering senses. <laughs> carries away a man's discrimination just as strong wind tosses a boat on the high seas. So this is all about, you know, Gita talks a lot about not being influenced by what is attractive to the five senses. Okay? Again, it doesn't mean that you don't like to eat something, you know. I always give that same example, you know. I enjoy my food, you know. I want to, I want to have what I like, you know. But then, you are, am, I, am I a slave of that? Or am I able to control you know, that through my, through my firmness of mind, you know, that stability of mind? That's the main thing here. But if you allow the mind to be totally driven by the five senses, or I see this, or I want this, and you go after this, you know, and, and then you suffer if you don't get it, then you are being tossed around like a boat in an ocean. You know, wind comes and you just go this way, that way. That's what the mind is doing at that time. Not stable at all. That's not the whole idea here. So, these these senses, the sense organs, they have to be controlled. They have to be in the under the control of the pure intellect, not the ego. Ego wants everything that it likes. Intellect knows what to do whether it is pleasant or not pleasant. Okay? Sometimes things are not pleasant and yet they are desirable. Okay? You want to do that. You know, there's a, in the Kathopanisha there is a term, two terms used for that, Shreyas and Preyas in Sanskrit. Shreyas means what? Something that is desirable. Pleasant, and the Preyas means something that is pleasant. What is desirable may not be pleasant. <laughs> and what is pleasant Generally, it's not desirable. <laughs> but that, that's what we're saying. You have to distinguish between these two. It's like a battle in the mind. It's like one says, okay, oh, I need that. And okay, no, 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 you don't need that. But still, which overpowers what? Like, like. That's right. That's what they're saying. It's going up and down. All right. Now, this is... Uh, a lot of words here that you have to uh, kind of think about very, very carefully. Relinquishing egotism. Ahankara is ego, basically. Violence. Well, balam is not, the, the word used is balam. That's not violence. Balam is more like display of power. You know, I am, I'm very powerful. You, know, you display that. That's not violence, necessarily. But anyway. Uh, I, I took this translation from somebody, but you know, sometimes these words used are different from what my understanding is. Then self-centered arrogance, abandoning craving, anger, and the selfish power of possessiveness, being unselfish and resting in the peace of the supreme vision. Then such a person is fit for oneness with Brahman. What's Brahman? What's Brahman? Hmm? Supreme consciousness. Supreme being. Brahman is 
you know, in the, in the Vedanta terminology, it's the supreme God, you can call it, supreme being, Parama, Parabrahma as it's called. Okay. But this kind of verse, right, this is something where people actually spend, you know, just to go through this verse, you can spend an hour. Because here you have to understand what is egotism, what is ego. Okay? And there's a lot to be talked about when you talk about the ego. Right? See, again, I don't have time here. Uh, 7.45. 7.45 almost, and I have a lot to do. Uh, I, I hope you will contemplate on this verse. Please think about individual words. Okay? And see what you get out of it. Because there's a lot to, to talk about in this verse, a lot of it. Okay? Now we go, move on to Bhakti Yoga, which is the yoga of devotion. And it says there are, in general, you know, he says, he kind of classifies people into four categories, four types of people who worship me. They are the distressed people, the seekers of self knowledge, the seeker of wealth. And those who are already kind of enlightened, you know, they have already attained their goal of life. So these are the four kinds of people who come for, you know, with a sense of devotion to me, all right? When he says to me, it always means the supreme being. Krishna is representing himself as the supreme being, okay? So people who are distressed, you know, I... I, I lost somebody in my family or I lost a lot of money or my house got burnt. And you go to a temple, oh, please, God, save me, for, you know, forgive me for all my bad things and, you know, please do this. So you are doing some devotion because you are, you have some, some suffering going on. If you're already a seeker, uh, like I'm hoping every one of us is a seeker here as a, as a yoga instructor, you know, then also you have a sense of devotion to that supreme being. But then there are people who just want to amass wealth. You know, they also become devotees of God. Please give me so much money. Please do this to me, etc. Okay? So these are bhakta. Bhakta means devotion. Bhakta means this kind of a one-pointed devotion. And then he says that, look, I personally take care of both your spiritual as well as material well-being if you are a steadfast devotee. Okay, and then always you should remember me, adore me with single-minded contemplation. This is pure devotion now. There's nothing else going on except this concept of self, uh, of this God. And he says, it doesn't matter what you offer me as a leaf, flower, fruit, water. I will take all that. I will know that you are a good devotee. Basically, that's all he's saying. And then, same thing, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you offer as a, as a sacrifice and, and whatever you do by way of penance, it, it should all be offered to me. The whole concept of bhakti or devotion, you can think of it in two ways. Okay? One is we do action. One is we get results of our action. What bhakti says, whatever you do, as action, do it as an instrument of a higher power. You are working as an instrument. Somebody else, some other higher power is inspiring you, is driving your action. Okay? Through the three gunas, but still is driven by the higher power. And therefore you are 
driven by this higher power and that's why you're doing these actions. And whatever you get as a result, as an outcome of these actions, it doesn't matter what it is, good or bad, whether you, or your desire was fulfilled or not, offer it back to him. Look, hey God, you know, look, I did it for you and I offer it back to you. You know, I'm happy with whatever I have. It's okay. I'm such a devotee, you know, doesn't, nothing matters, nothing bothers me. That's the essence of, of devotion. You're doing everything as, a, as an instrument of a higher power and you get everything back to him. I'm not, I'm not getting anything out of it. That's the highest devotion. Okay? Again, this is a lot of words here and things that people spend a lot of time explaining this. So one who remains the same toward friend and foe, in honor and dishonor or disgrace, in heat or cold, pleasure and pain, you are free from attachment, indifferent to censure and praise, who is quiet, content with whatever you have, unattached to a place, a country or a house, who is tranquil, full of devotion, that kind of a person is dear to me. <laughs> you guess what? <laughs> Even one of these is hard to attain, right? <laughs> but it's given a whole list of things. How do you remain completely undisturbed in pain or pleasure, attachment, etc. Oh, it's very hard. Okay, but that's the, the target and that's the, the challenge of our life. Okay, one must elevate and not degrade oneself by one's own mind. The mind is your friend and mind is your enemy. That's what everyone says. In all these scriptures, they say mind. Okay, mind is, has a broad con- connotation. Like I said, I don't have time to go into that, but uh, if you can control the mind, it's a friend, because then it, it gives us pleasure. If you don't control the mind, then the mind becomes the driver. Okay, we're in trouble. Is that why like, like meditation is such a big thing? Exactly. Precisely. That's what Patanjali says. Meditate. That's it. Because you're learning, in essence, to is it to control your mind or just to kind of clear your mind? Clear your mind. Calm the mind. It's more about calming and clearing the mind, right? Control is an out is a, is a byproduct of that clarity, right? Once you have clarity of thinking, once you have clarity of your 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 thought process, then you know what to what to do, then your mind will guide your senses appropriately. When you don't have that clarity, then the mind gets driven by these five senses. And that's where the problem is. So meditation clears our junk, the garbage that we have in the mind. It's cleansing process. That's what Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra he says, cleansing is going on. Okay? The word he uses in one of the sutras where you, when you come to that is ashuddhi kshaya. Ashuddhi is impurity of the mind. So he says all these practices of yoga where meditation is the most important practice it will cleanse out your mind of all the impurities. That's what is happening. Okay? Control is not what we are after. We are after cleansing. Control happens as a result of that. For him who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friends. 
again, if you don't conquer it, conquer it, it's your enemy. And yoga is not possible for one who eats too much or who does not eat at all, or one who sleeps too much or too little. <laughs> Middle path, okay? <laughs> okay? So this is all in chapter 6 in Gita. It's all about the mind control, dhyana yoga as it's called. So he says the, the mind is very restless and very unsteady. But then, during meditation, this is all about meditation, the mind wanders, okay, you should just witness it as, a, as, a, as, a, as an observer sitting far away from what's going on in the mind. It might just go, just get this. You're, you're sitting here and chanting, you know, my mantra is peace, peace, om, peace, om, peace. You're chanting it and suddenly your mind says, oh my God, I'm hungry, I need to go and shopping, you know, and I need to go and cook this and all that stuff. All that happens, right? But what it's saying is, it will happen. There's no question. There's no way you can control that at, at this stage. But can you just watch it? Ah, I'm hungry. Watch that as a thought. Put it aside. It's okay. I'll take care of it once I'm done with meditation. <laughs> so as an observer, if you can just watch it from a distance, you're good to go. Okay? That's what it's saying here. So the best yogi is one who regards every being like oneself and can feel the pain and pleasure of others. This is all about, you know, compassion and, uh, you know, things like pity, you know, uh, empathy and all that good stuff, you know. So this is very important in the, both in yoga and, and, and in, yoga, in the Gita. Patanjali also talk about, talks about that compassion, you know, very, very strongly. Okay. Undoubtedly, the mind is restless and is very difficult to control because Arjuna asked him a question. That, Look, my mind is so restless, I cannot control it. He says, yeah, it's true. But it is subdued by vigorous practice, such as meditation and detachment. So the two words are used by Patanjali as well as Gita, Abhyasa and Vairagya. You'll see them everywhere. Okay? Abhyasa is constant practice and Vairagya is totally uh, being detached. Okay? All right, so uh, let me skip this. And again, there are three definitions of yoga in the Gita. The he who looks upon opposites as equals, who has risen above duality and freed himself from vice and virtue is a yogi. So when you are able to do that, you are able to do that only when you are skilled in action. Okay, when you, are, you have all the skills that you need, then only you can do all this. So this is yoga is skill in action. There's one definition. The other is be even tempered in success and failure. The mental evenness or the equanimity is yoga. <coughs> we already saw that verse earlier. <coughs> then the third definition is yoga is known as the disconnection of the connection with suffering. We are connected with suffering right now. But we want to disengage from that connection. That's yoga. <laughs> Why are we connected with suffering? We constantly are. Because of our likes and dislikes, we are connected with suffering. As long as we have these likes and dislikes, we are going to suffer. So we are already connected with that. We want to disengage from that. That's what yoga is all about. Okay. Uh, very, very quickly and briefly, three gunas, like I said, this is a very, very important component of the of the whole 
discussion both in the Yoga Sutras as well as in the Gita. So these are the psycho-physical energy threads that constitute material existence. And these are the threads of reality that bind us to the world of change. They are the ones which propel us to do things in life. So in, the, in this uh, chapter 14, in, in the Gita is pretty much allocated to the discussion of these three gunas. And then it's defined here, kind of sattva is pure, illuminating and free from sickness. Okay. It binds us, binds the soul through attachment with happiness and knowledge. It's still binding, even though, you know, sattva is our goal, that we want to attain that kind of mind where it is sattvic, you know, but even that binds eventually. Okay. Free from sickness, I don't see that word here, nirmalatvam. Nirmalatvam is free from impurities, not sickness. Anyway, these translations are somewhat dubious in times. <laughs> I find many translations, many words here which are not quite accurate. Okay. Then Rajas is full of passion, is born out of intense desire and attachment. We talked about that already. It binds the soul through attachment with action and also attachment to the outcome of action. Karma means both action and the outcome of action. Remember that. Karma Sangha. Attachment to both action and the outcome of that action. Thomas is darkness. Like you said, dullness, darkness, crudeness. It is born out of ignorance and causes delusion. Delusion is confusion basically. Not, not knowing what the reality is. Okay? And it binds the soul through recklessness, laziness, sleep, inactivity and negative stuff. All we do that negatively. Okay? So one who has transcended the gunas, this is a very important concept here. The, the word they use in many places is gunatita in Sanskrit. Gunatita means you have transcended the gunas. Is alike in pleasure and pain, remaining the same towards piece of gold, a lump of clay, toward the desirable and the undesirable, equal in defamation and self-adulation. Again, very, very difficult concepts to attain. That's the goal. <laughs> okay. All right. Rise above the guna. This is my kind of two cents on why this war was justified. <laughs> okay. After you know, we always have that question. When I when I started reading Gita, I could never reconcile to the fact that this war had to take place, killing thousands and thousands of people. I mean, to me, war is evil itself. War itself is evil in my mind. You know, that's how I grew up, you know, thinking that war is bad. We should never have to fight a war. But hey, this is Gita, right? It says war is essential. It was essential. So I... I put together the justification for this in my own mind as my best understanding. So the preconditions for engaging in this battle are Arjuna should develop equanimity towards pleasure and pain, loss and gain, victory and defeat. That stability, that calmness of the mind, that clarity of the mind is very essential. Then, then only you should engage in war, not out of ego, not out of anger. Okay? Should surrender all his acts to him Okay, like I said, the sannyasya was the word used. You renounce 
as in the case of a sannyasi. Okay, you should all renounce all your actions to, to that supreme being. The mind should be dwelling in the pure spiritual self. That's very important. Okay? And you have no expectations. You are completely free of any expectation that should be the outcome of your war. You battle, you do it as your duty, whether you lose or win, you're okay. All right? And then you should have no obsession of mine. This is mine. You know, these are my uncles, my, my cousins. These are, this is my property. This is my being. You know, that mine. You should get away from that completely. All right? And now... You should uh, avoid all feverishness from his being. You know, feverishness means, oh, I, I'm so confused, I don't know what to do, you know, I'm trembling and all that. It should go away. Then you should go and do war. That's okay. Now, I'm going to skip over all this because these are many verses which are extremely significant and they give you all kinds of beautiful information. But I could not, like I said, I could not kind of put them into those categories that I had earlier. So, just a very quick readout. Humility, modesty, non-violence, forgiveness, honesty, service to your guru, purity of thought, word and deed, steadfastness, self-control, aversion for sense objects, absence of ego, constant reflection on the pain and suffering inherent in birth, old age, disease and death. Every, like I said, every one of these words you have to please sit down, contemplate on them, see how you can apply them to your life. Modesty, non-violence, forgiveness. Look at situations in life and, and see if we can, you know, modify some of our behavior to, to you know, incorporate these concepts, these, you know, ideals. All right? Same thing. A lot of the, the detachment of the family. I'm not going to go through this. You know, there's a lot of beautiful words here, they, they are, you know, in chapter 13, there are 20 of these values given, and they are called, you know, the, the values in, in life that we want to attain, okay? There is a book, it's called The Value of Values, okay? And this book is, oh, this it's a fairly good book, uh, and that book is uh, all devoted to these 20 values only, okay? And describes them beautifully, each one of these values and what what it means to have these values and how to attain them in life. Okay? So the title of the book is The Value of Values. Okay? It's by Swami Dayananda. Very nice book. Very, I strongly encourage you to get that book. And it's all about these 20 values that we are talking about here. Okay? All right, so I think I'm going to... Oh, this is again a very important verse here that uh, what it says is that, look, there is whenever there is a decline of dharma or a decline of righteousness in, in this word and a predominance of adharma, unright, unrighteousness or evil predominates, then I manifest myself. That's Krishna is telling that, look, I take birth as a human being so that I can eliminate all this evil. Okay, I can help you protect the good and transform the wicked and then we can re-establish the order in, in this world. That's a, again a very, very significant verse. 
And there are these two verses which are called the ladder of destruction. <laughs> okay, so why, why we, uh, how we destroy ourselves basically. So what he says is, one develops attachment to sense objects, right? We always talked about that, sense objects. By thinking about these sense objects, desire for these objects come from attachment to these objects, right? Attachment, raga, it's called. And if we are not able to fulfill our desires, we get angry. Everyone got that? Anger happens if we are not able to fulfill our desires, right? Now, what does anger do to us? Beautiful verse. Delusion or wild ideas arise from anger. Delusion means we get totally confused. When, when we are angry, we have no sense of right or wrong. That's delusion. We don't know what's going on. We are totally you know, distraught, uh, uh, confused in a sense. The mind is bewildered by delusion. When, when that happens, we are not able to think clearly. There's no intellectual ability, ability left in the mind. We are not able to decide anything. So reasoning is destroyed. There's no way to reason anything. Memory is destroyed, okay? <laughs> Smriti bhransha. Smriti means our memory gets confused, okay? Smriti bhransha. I don't know the word memory is not used in the translation, but that's the word smriti. Memory here, okay? And then buddhi nasha. Buddhi means our intellect gets destroyed. We have no more intellectual capability. And what, what, if we don't have any intellectual capability, what happens? You are destroyed. Your whole being is destroyed. You are annihilated, basically. Mentally, you are annihilated. Because no intellect. Nothing to work with. So what it's saying is, same thing. If you have desire for objects, keep it up to that. Keep the desire as, there, as being there, but if you get angry as, as an outcome because your, your desire was not fulfilled, then you are destroying yourself. What he's hinting to is, Arjuna, look, your desire is to keep these people safe. These people who are your, who you are considering your own kith and kin, your own bosses, your own teachers and your everyone, right? That's your desire. This is what might happen. If you don't fulfill your desire, if you start killing them, you, get, you might get either angry with yourself or you might get totally depressed. You know, things happen. And that can destroy you more than anything else, eventually. So he says, fight. <laughs> All right. Okay, that's the last slide. You know, I was looking at some modern applications. I think there are more. This is an older slide. The one that I want to mention is about this guy that I met a few years ago, Satish Moh, the last one. Uh, he visited uh, uh, this place uh, it's almost like 10 years ago. What he told us was that he runs a business in India. He's in Mumbai, in India. He runs a business, and his business is all based on these three gunas, Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. <laughs> okay, so what he does is, <clears throat> he'll give you a questionnaire, and you know, large number of questions, and you answer those questions, and based on those questions, on answers that you give, he will determine 
which of these three gunas is dominant in your personality? Whether it is sattva, rajas or tamas. Because depending on what is dominant in your personality, he can guide you. If you are a student, he can guide you which subject you should take in college. If you are in college, he will guide you what kind of work you should pursue. If you are already in work, he will guide you as to what you should do to make more progress in your work or change your job or whatever. So he is running a business, successful business, based on these three gunas. Okay. Very beautiful. His, his website is given here. And you can go there. Uh, I haven't been there for a long time, but this is, I met this guy here. He came, gave a brief talk one time, and I met him, had a chat with him. <laughs> Very interesting guy. Okay. He's Satish Mod. He's also Maharashtrian from Bombay. <laughs> Uh, very interesting guy. All right. So this is all I have. I've, I guess, yapped for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Any final thoughts or questions? I know I went through it very, very quickly. My, my first question to you is, is this style of presentation acceptable to you? You know, because I went through things quickly. Does it make sense to do it, or in, in future, I'm, I'm asking for your suggestion. Would it make sense to modify it for a two-hour session, you know, something different, which will make it more uh, meaningful maybe to you, if it was not meaningful right now? <laughs> what do you think? I really like it. I actually wish we had more time. <laughs> well, I, I'm saying that. Then. Because of limitation of time, my question is because of time. Yeah, because I feel like there's a lot of... Like I, I, want, I have more questions. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed it, though, actually, a lot. Thank you. So thank Wonderful. You. It's, it's a, you know, like I said, it's 700 verses. First of all, to pick a few verses which are meaningful, you know, it, it's a, it took it, you know, for me... Yeah. It's very hard to pick few, you know. And like I said, if you ask somebody else, they'll pick totally different verses. You know. But this is what has appealed to me in my own study of the of these uh, uh, verses. And to present the concepts, it's very hard because they are so deep, in, and some of them, you know, like I said, even I I don't understand them very thoroughly myself. Okay. Uh, so if I'm sharing something. And maybe, you know, not exactly what Krishna meant in his head, but it's my understanding of what Krishna said. Yeah, that's the best I can do. I think um, maybe another hour to go through threads in the story where there are deities and how they relate to the principles of the story would be really good because I think that's very hard to understand as well as the concepts that you have presented. Or I can just pick fewer verses. I, that's one thought I have in mind. Just pick fewer verses and explain a little more of each one of those, maybe. A little more in depth. Anyway, I'll think about that. But uh, you know, what I would like you to do is to give me your feedback in writing. You know, that way. Uh, think about it and then spend some more time in understanding you know, what, what I said. And I'll be, you know, I'll be sending you the recording as well as you obviously have these presentations. 
So think about what you know we went through, and if you have any kind of suggestions, I would really welcome it. We truly appreciate. So please give us your feedback. We do have one question on the justification of war. Is it is it good versus evil, or is it is that it's not as simple as that? It's not quite as simple as, but basically it is recognizing what is evil. Now, you know, this is a very loaded question because if my ego is dominant, I might think this is evil, whereas it's not evil. My ego is involved. My ego has all my own, you know, samskaras, my own past impressions which dictate what is good for me, what is good for you. That's why I said, you know, you look at a child's room and because of your ego, you decide that what he's doing is wrong. Is that wrong, really? What harm is done if he's scattered all over the place? Who's, who's getting hurt? Right? So, as a, as a mother, I think this is evil. But is it really? At that time, my ego is dictating it. But when my mind is purified, when mind is completely clear of all confusion, there is no duality in my mind, then what I decide is the right action then. In this case, who is making the decision eventually? Krishna. Krishna is God. He has no confusion. He has no doubts in his mind. If he decides that this war is justified, it is justified. That's what we are thinking. So Arjuna may be confused. He has all the dualities in the mind. But he is being guided by Krishna. Who has no confusion? <laughs> does that make sense now? It does. I think I'm still struggling though that he wants the end of. Um, it, it feels like he wants the end of. Um, Kauravas. Yeah. Yes. Because. They represent evil. Yeah. Because yeah. they represent evil, because they are doing things which are not justifiable based on our own. Understanding of what's right and wrong. Krishna, like the sinful stuff, and in, in the, the so he's trying to. And that's why I keep going back to good versus evil. But I, I see what you're saying. Is it's more than just that. It just happens to be that's the byproduct of it. Yes. Yes. I wrote down um, that Arjuna is killing his families and bodies so that because and, and killing the evil in their bodies but because the soul lives on forever he is not in essence killing them that's the that's the message as part of the jnana yoga that's yeah that's what krishna says yeah that's what krishna has given the message that look they are predetermined to be to be dead mm-hmm. um, that's what he says in one of the verses that they, this is all predetermined you're only being an instrument in, in finishing off what is already predetermined. Okay? It's predetermined because of their actions, because of their thoughts, because of what, who they represent. Okay? But you are being an instrument. You have to do this as your duty, as an instrument of this action. Okay. Any other? You can always ask me questions later. <laughs> okay, can we do three ohms one more time, if you don't mind? Close the eyes. 
Just keep the body nice and tall but relaxed, eyes closed. We'll do Om three times, so inhale. going to join the hands and bow down a little, we'll say a word which is to praise the teachers, Shri Guru Bhyo Namaha, With the, I bow down, Shri Guru Bhyo Namaha means I bow down to all my teachers, all my gurus from the most ancient to the most current who have given us this knowledge, this wisdom which is presented in the Yoga Sutras, which is presented in the Bhagavad Gita, so we can lead a more meaningful, um, a more useful life. Thank you. Namaste. Have a wonderful rest of the evening.